Welcome to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate. The show that gets you inside access to how some of retail real estate's most successful leaders went from your average Joe Schmo to the CEO. I'm your host, Aaron Zucker. Have you ever met someone and just knew that they were a badass? You know who I'm talking about. Like 30 seconds after you meet them for the first time in your life, you already know they're a legit someone. That's the perfect segue into my buddy, Stanley Martini, a Planet Fitness franchisee with 32 clubs and counting across Atlanta and Boston. It's pretty impressive for a kid who grew up selling coffee at 5 a.m. for 10 cents on the corner in Boston before school each day. His story is incredible beyond that, so enjoy. Hey, everybody. Aaron Zucker here the host of Limitless, How to Crush It in Commercial Real Estate. Wanted to take a quick second and thank the guys over at Cas Source, who are a phenomenal agency that helped me put together this idea of creating this podcast into a reality. They're willing and able to not only put together a podcast, but any other great marketing content that you may need. And I'd highly recommend reaching out to them. So excited to have Stan Demartini join us. Stan doesn't need much of an introduction, but just in case, I will go ahead and give it to you anyway. You own 32 Planet Fitness franchises across the Eastern Seaboard with concentration, I guess you should say, in Massachusetts and Atlanta, correct? That is correct. Yeah. So obviously, you don't get to 32 of anything overnight. And I think everybody out there is wondering, younger guy, what appears to the outsider's perspective is an overnight success story. I think we're going to learn more about your story, which we're all pumped for, and how you got there today. But first, I think it's really important to understand the background and how you got here. How'd you grow up? Where are you from? What was your upbringing like as a kid? Yeah, great. Well, Aaron, thanks for having me. I'm kind of excited about going through this because it's not often that you get to sit back and reflect and talk about your story a little bit. Yeah, which everybody's going to learn pretty quickly. You're not much of one to sit back and reflect very often. No, I am not. But you know, sometimes your head's down running and you don't realize what's really going on around you until you've accomplished something. And I think that's kind of where my mindset has been for a while. But I grew up in a very modest Italian background family. My dad was a, a workaholic. My mom uh, took care of the kids and we had a modest upbringing. We lived in a three-family home in Boston with our grandparents on the second floor and our aunt and uncle on the, the middle floor. We lived on the third floor. So very traditional, old-school Italian upbringing. And my early childhood memories are always around the importance of the family and Sunday dinners together and just taking time for each other. And I think that that has kind of indirectly washed into how we've built our business and the culture that we have for our business today. I think we take a little bit of a different approach with our team members. It's very personalized and it's probably best explained the fact that some of our people have been with us for 25 years. And so usually when people come to work for us, because we treat them right, they stay and they believe in the vision and the passion and the culture that we put forth. So I think it's something to be proud of, obviously. You know, we never thought 18 years ago, 20 years ago, when we were hiring some of these kids that were 18 years of age, now have families and they're 50, 60 years old still working for us. Wow. I know you. So I have an unfair advantage compared to the people listening. That doesn't shock me that I ask a question about you and you make it about us, we, family-like atmosphere with your company. But I got to keep digging. I got to ask more about your upbringing. So you said your dad was a workaholic. What did he do? Yeah. So my dad was a serial entrepreneur in the restaurant business. And he had probably three main restaurants over the course of his lifespan. He was always a single store operator though. So he would develop it up, sell it, ideally at a profit, and then use those funds to go open the next restaurant? Well, he would run the store. So he had a big run downtown Boston through the 80s and 90s before that economic downturn changed all of downtown crossing. 
And actually, he made his living selling 35 cent cups of coffee and 65 cent cups of coffee to the financial district in downtown Boston. There wasn't a Starbucks, there wasn't a Dunkin', there wasn't an Auburn Pan anywhere. He was the first guy to sell coffee in downtown Boston. Which is saying something because Dunkin' is a New England brand. Yes. So I'm giving you just insight on what my upbringing was like. So I was 12 years old at the front counter pouring coffees, learning to count change and be able to communicate with people. And customer service was always a big factor. And, you know, six o'clock in the morning, 5.30 in the morning, people were standing in line out the door because they needed their coffee and it was the only place to get it. So what time are you at work? Early. <laughs> what, what, come on, what's early mean? When I was 12 years old, I would go in with my dad every morning. I would be there by six o'clock. This was during the summer months when pretty much every kid 12 year old was probably in camp or doing something fun. I was instilled that we had to work because that was just the mantra back then. And we make fun of it now and you, you see it on comedy shows today, but when something's wrong and you're Italian, you work. That's how we fixed everything. You got a headache, you work. Those are the skill sets that indirectly obviously had a lasting impact on where we are today as a family and, and the success that we've had. And so you look back on those things and you're thankful for, for the experiences. So you got there at six o'clock in the morning throughout the summer. You didn't have to work during the school year too, did you? No, that wasn't until high school. Got it. So you would get up in the morning before school, in high school, you'd get up, you'd go work at the coffee stand, then go to class all day. Then... No, while I was in high school, I used to work after school during the months that I wasn't playing sports. And then I went to college. I actually played two sports in college. And I also worked four years while I was in college. So managing that type of a schedule, I guess you need to step back and think about it today. Nobody does that today. Right. You know, and every second of my day was identified with me having to be accountable for something in my life. And that's kind of how I grew up and really ended up excelling is that understanding that you, ha you can't waste your days and you can't waste your times and you, you just have to be accountable for what's going on every day. And so that, it became normalcy for me, which in a very unnormal environment, trying to study, get a BS in finance and play two sports in college is basically impossible to do today. So I want to get to your college career because it's fascinating to me that you played two sports and were academically sound. But before we get there, tell me more about your upbringing. So were you an only child? Did you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, great question. So I have a brother, Sal, who's in the business with me. He's my only brother with three years apart. Who's older? I am. Okay. Doesn't shock me based on your personality, having some leadership qualities. I was probably a little bit more advanced early on than he was. So I was, you know, 13 going on 18 and he was 13, still acting like he was nine. So there was a little bit more. <laughs> Sal, I hope you're listening out there. <laughs> but he knows that. He just stopped playing with his Transformers last week. So he knows that. <laughs> That's a joke in the family. When we got into college, I think our brotherly friendship went to a different level. And then we started working together in the family businesses. My dad always had restaurants. So, you know, in through college and after college, we were in the restaurants. And what really happened, the turning point or the pivotal point for me was my sophomore year of college, my dad had a quadruple bypass surgery. And he had his restaurant, which was basically a 450-seat sports bar that had a massive bar business. And he had just opened a world gym licensing up in Boston. What inspired him to do that? I have no idea. Because he's a restaurant guy through and through. Completely he's... out of his, his comfort zone. He went into partnership with a dear friend of his, Joe Galanti. And they just kind of jumped into this thing. And, you know, back then the gym business was a different animal. It wasn't financed properly with the banks. There was no EFT memberships. So, so people were paying cash memberships. So it's all for people who don't know what EFT memberships are. What are EFT well, memberships? Traditionally today, people pay monthly through electronic funds transfer or through the 
checking a credit card. Back in the 80s and 90s, if you signed up at a gym, you paid a lump sum, $350, $400 a year, either cash, check, or charge. Really? All up front? All up front. So That would not work well with millennials. Correct. <laughs> and then from a cash flow business, it was a very difficult business to, to operate because there was no consistent cash flow coming in, no reoccurring revenue. Everybody talks about these reoccurring revenue models, which is what Planet is. The gym business in the 80s and 90s was anything but that. So in order to get into the gym business, it was a heavy, heavy cash-associated endeavor. And back then, if you owned three world gyms or three gold gyms, it was like the equivalent of owning 25 planets today. As far as capital intensity. Exactly. Yeah, you had to pay cash for everything. So this was not a scalable business is what you're saying? No, no, it wasn't. And so we opened that business. We had no idea what we were doing. And we floundered around. Give us some context at this point. And I'm sorry to cut you off. I I could listen to you for days, but we got to make sure that we portray the story correctly. So this happened... 1993. And you're how old? 17. Got it. Oh, so he took out the World Gym license while you were in high school. I just got into college. Yep. Got it. And you played football and baseball. Correct. Took a year of school off. And for those of you who haven't met Stan yet, if you met Stan, you'd figure out pretty quickly that he looks like he probably played football and baseball. (laughs) Unbelievable. (laughs) All right. So anyway, I take a year of school off and the deal was that you have to go back to school, Stan, which I wanted to. This is between your senior year of high school and your freshman freshman, sophomore year of, of college. He took the heart attack and I jumped in the gym to stabilize it. He had a gym, he had a a restaurant. We really didn't know what was happening in the gym. We were flying blind basically because there was no family presence in the gym when we got sick. So I jumped in there and then right off the bat, you know, realized that we weren't really making that much money. It was kind of like a place to hang out and we didn't know what we were doing from a business standpoint. Was it losing money? Was it breaking even? No, but we were making a week's pay. We were living, we were paying our help but I wouldn't say it was a massively profitable endeavor at that point. How did this compare success-wise to the restaurant that you guys had? Yeah, I would say that you know the restaurant was probably helped funding some of the offsets in the gym. Yeah, the restaurant was his moneymaker. So I graduate college, I go back to school, I graduate college, and you know a lot of my friends were going off to Wall Street back then. You know That was the time to become a trader or an investment banker. And I just had a passion for the gym business just because of my athletic background. And I started working in the gym for a little bit and I had a lot of changes and ideas and that I wanted to implement and I thought we could do better. And, you know, it was a tough sell to my dad being the the patriarch of the family to try to make him understand that we were selling the business at that point for $49 a month with a $49 enrollment fee. And we were coming off our best year ever. And actually, we were making decent money at that point. So this is like 1996-ish? 96, 97, before the... So you finished school. Yeah, I'm out of school. And Where did you go to school? Bentley University. Got it. It's a business school in uh, Waltham, Massachusetts. And how far is that from where the gym was? Like, were you able to... You know, it's, it's a half hour. It was doable. It was, it was a commute. So you were working in the gym throughout your time in school? Sure. When you, were, when you weren't worked. in season? Always were. And what you were training? What were you working the desk? What were you doing? Folding towel? I did every aspect of every business that my dad owns from the restaurant business from cleaning toilets to peeling potatoes to cooking to bartending same thing in the gym i started you know front desk then i started personal training and then i started managing the club and pretty much a jack of all trades and that's really where i learned how to manage people i learned how to talk to people i learned how to mentor people i didn't know that was happening but indirectly it was happening because of all the exposure and experience that i had throughout those times Tell me more about your college experience because most people's college experience is 
go away to school, party a little bit, go to class a few hours a day, think it's stressful, cram before exams, do a little drugs, drink a little bit. does not sound like you had the same college experience. I mean, college football, that's at least an eight or nine month year round commitment. College baseball had to have taken up six months of the year. Some of that probably had overlap with football. By the way, you're at a great school in Bentley, academically challenging, and you worked. I mean, time management is a 17-year-old. I mean, you're learning time management skills as a 17-year-old that, frankly, some people never learn. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because if you think back at what my experience was at Bentley, it was a life-changing experience. And I don't think that while I was in it, I realized what was happening. I went to Bentley and I transferred. So let me just step back. My first year of school, I was at St. Michael's up in Vermont. Then I transferred out of St. Michael's. Was this tied to your dad's health, leaving St. Michael's? Well, it was tied to an injury I had in my arm. So what basically was coming out, I went to an all-boys prep school in high school. And it was a very athletic, challenging high school slash academic school. And I was trying to get into a semi-Ivy League college, which was Tufts University. I applied early decision and I didn't get into it. I was trying to get into the dental program. And being the first person in my family to go to college, my parents really didn't understand the whole... The dynamic of spending your time on your studies so you can apply and get in. Well, no, we just we were told that we were going to get in. The head coach told my parents I was going to get in. I was the number one recruit to play football and baseball there. And then when I didn't get in, we hadn't applied to any other schools, to be honest with you. So it's kind of embarrassing, but that was really the nature of what had happened back there. And my dad was pretty upset going to an all-boys prep school that after four years of pain private school that we had no options. And so on a phone call, the Zavarian brothers who ran the prep school called St. Michael's, which is a Christian college up in Vermont, and they got me in on a phone call. So I'm leaving for school my freshman year, knowing that I don't even want to be there. There was no sports for me to play. There was nothing up there for me. So I go up there, I get straight A's, I transfer, and I applied to Bentley and Boston College. I got into both, and BC said, you need to play either one or the other sports. You can't play both. And that wasn't what I wanted to do. I had too much to prove. At this time, BC is like, you know, right in the heart of the thick of things in the Big East across all sports. So it's not shocking when you tell the story that it worked out that way. Yeah, but I just, I had it in me that I had something to prove. They didn't want me to play two sports. And I, in the way I kind of left high school and, and what I wanted to prove to some of my coaches and some of the people that were doubters in my life. And so, and you kind of think back of the story I'm going to tell you now, it's kind of ironic, but... I transfer to Bentley. I put the helmet on. I walk on the field. I end up starting as a linebacker and we win 36 games in a row. And I basically never lose a game with the helmet on and I graduate. Whoa. And then on the flip side of the baseball field, I hadn't played baseball since my junior year in high school because of an elbow injury when I went football. And basically I'd taken three years off from baseball. I walk onto that team and within the second or third week by Easter, I'm in the starting lineup. Playing what position? Playing first base because I had a shoulder injury from football. So I wasn't really kind of was lost with my position, but I had a lot to prove in baseball. And I ended up, you know, breaking a bunch of home run records, played in the All Star game at Fenway Park. And wow, that must have been insane as a yeah, kid. Yeah, it was just a great experience. And baseball was a, a big passion of mine and ended up playing, you know, 20 years of baseball in men's leagues after I graduated from college. So were you better at football or? I was a little bit more polished of a, as a baseball player. Okay. But I love to. I think there was something in me that allowed to get a lot of stress out when I was able to hit people. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Nothing wrong with that. Just my competitive nature. You know, I just think my dad always set the bar so high for us as kids. Yeah. Almost to an unhealthy level, but that's kind of the upbringing I was around. So, you know, that was the way my mentality was. So you have kids today. I have three boys. And 
are you thankful for the way that you were brought up and just making some minor modifications or are you taking it a completely different direction? Yeah, that's a great question. So as a, as a young adult and young parent yourself, I think you can probably appreciate this, but you always as a parent want to take the good aspects of what your parents gave you and tweak it into your own style. And I think that the foundation that I had with my dad obviously has given me an opportunity to have many, many advantages in life that other people don't have. But I also think that in today's society, some of the way that those lessons were delivered probably don't stick today. And so and so being a little bit softer with my kids and being a little bit more understanding and less rigid is probably the aspect that I'm taking away from those so your life kids lessons. aren't selling coffee at five in the morning before school? No, they're not. They're actually living a normal life at this point. <laughs> but there's good and bad to that. It's a lot different today. The kids' activities today don't allow them to work the way you know we were able to work as kids. But there was definitely something, there's a correlation between why I'm sitting here today and the experiences I had with my dad, for sure. That's why in starting this podcast, I was so adamant about making sure that I got everybody that I interviewed's backgrounds because you're not the first interview I've had, but it's been consistent. Everybody's background and upbringing has either played a role with, screw this, I wanted something different for myself, or I saw what my parents did this, did it something this way. I want to take those skills and life lessons that I learned from them and maybe tweak them to your own liking, like sort of like you've been able to do. So that's always a fascinating part of these interviews that I've really enjoyed thus far. So incredible insight. So you come out of school, you graduate from this great business school. You have friends going to Wall Street, working in the financial district, and you're like, I'm going to go work in the gym. And your friends say what? I think no one was making money back then. So I was actually the only guy that had consistent income throughout high school and college. So I had my car. I paid my own insurance for my car. That was, you know, if I wanted to have a car, I could have it. I had to pay my own insurance. I had an apartment. My friends didn't. I actually lent one of my buddies money to go to Wall Street to start a life for himself because I could do that. So I was a little bit more financially solvent back then. Based on you hustling throughout school? Right. But not to a point where it's going to get you anywhere in life. It was just, I was pretty good for a 22-year-old kid who just graduated. Sure. And this is 1997 now. Yes. 96, 97, 98. I get in the gym business and, and all of a sudden we, we catch wind of this new model coming around. And um, you got to understand, you know, we, we had some, some very good years selling the gym for $49 a month and, and, and what a $49 enrollment fee. And World of Gym, tell us a little bit about the background of World of Gym. What was the culture like in there? Yeah. So World Gym was the typical back then in the 80s and 90s. It was kind of a muscle head gym. We didn't cater to the masses the way we do today with the Planet Fitness model. It was the aerobic queens that wanted to take classes in the morning. And it was all the guys that were wanting to pump iron and, and lift and squat heavy weight at night. And really, we didn't have a true identity as a fitness brand back then. If you looked at some of the, the world gyms in the New England area, they were hardcore iron houses, you would call them. And, then, and yours was like that? Yeah, and ours was like that. And then Where did you guys peak in membership? Back then, I would say 1,400, 1,500 members. Got it. So when you guys peaked is right when you were coming out of school and you go to your dad and you're like, hey, dad, we got to change the model. Well, there was one significant event. We, 9-11 had happened. Okay. So you're a few years in at this point, obviously, 2001 right. comes. So, but we had a great three, four-year run. Everything was great. And we weren't thinking about changing anything. And then 9-11 happened. And because of where the location is in Boston, it's right next to Logan Airport, a significant amount of our business in that macro environment was affected by when the airline systems just kind of went into a stop. Did your members live near the club or were they commuting to and from the airport? Like We had a lot of people that got laid off that worked at the airport in different 
roles and responsibilities from not just studuses and pilots, but mechanics and people, bad guys, bad yeah. guys and just, just, just regular people that work down the airport. And they did a ton of layoffs and it didn't happen right at 9-11. It happened like a 24 to 36 month period later. There was a trickle down. Mm-hmm. And by the time it, it hit our gym, we were in a full-blown middle of a downturn there economically. Well, I mean, look, if I'm handling baggage at the airport and I like to go get a workout in to just keep myself in shape and be prepared to go into work, that's great. But if I lose my job, the first thing that's going is that $50 a month gym membership. I mean, that's a no-brainer. Especially in 2001, 2002. Which is also after the dot-com bubble too. So to put it bluntly, shit has hit the fan. All that downward pressure had crushed the economy back then. So now we're at the point where we know that there's this new model out there in 2004 these guys up in New Hampshire, Michael, Mark, and Chris, they start this new model. And we had a very good friend of ours who was another world gym operator down in Connecticut by the name of Joe Pepe actually convert his world gyms to planets. And he had three world gyms. So a guy back then that had three world gyms in the early 90s to late 90s was looked upon as a, as a big player. And so I went down there. My dad obviously knew Joe. I went down there and I was actually in one of his clubs in Orange, Connecticut, the day he flipped over the business. And I just saw what was going on. I stayed down there for like a week and worked with him side by side. Did you intend to stay there for a week or did it turn into a week trip? I knew I was staying down there, but it turned into like, I'm not leaving. I, this was too too much excitement was going on. Right. I get back home and I try to talk to my dad about it and he just didn't want to hear it still, you know, because he just didn't understand the model. Well, change is scary, especially when you've worked this... Yeah, I, I get that. You know, you guys basically, I'm telling my dad that his business is worth 75 basis points less than what it was before because I want to sell him a, a $10 membership from a $50 membership. So that's kind of a scary proposition. At the end of the day, we got to a point where our business was going to be insolvent if we didn't take the leap of faith. So in a weird, in a twisted, really screwed up way to put it, times being tough from a macro perspective on the economy sort of in a weird way, helped you guys because had things been good and you could have easily just said, you guys, meaning your family, you and your dad collectively could have just said, hey, let's just keep things the way they are. And this whole thing may not have happened. That becomes what you guys ultimately decide to do next. There were plenty of discussions at the Sunday dinner table between my mom and my dad about just shut the gym down. That's just the pain in the ass. Just shut it down. It's not making money. Shut it down. It's also important, I think, for our listeners to understand too, he still owns a restaurant at this point that is cash flowing and yes. and puts food on the table. So this isn't the gym's only nice to have if it's making money. It's right. not a it's not a life necessity. Correct. And so my mom saw it as a headache and it was more stress for my dad. And my dad for some reason just hung on. He didn't want to let it go. Do you think it part of that had to do with you being in the business? I think that there was some of a higher level mindset to him to say, hey, listen, my kids doesn't have a real job, potentially. I don't want to just take this away from him until we kind of think through what we're going to do here with this business. And this is 2004 or a little bit before. Yeah, you know, right after 9-11, we're going into this transition. Right? Okay, got it. And where does Sal fit into this? Just so I understand. Sal's just getting through with college. So okay. he's in the business. He's working in the restaurant. He's working in the gym. You know, we're kind of just doing this family shuffle between... We were basically like, you know, the Greek family that owns the pizza joint, but we were a little bit more sophisticated. (laughs) That's the way I like to tell the story. There you go. But anyway, you know, we get to the point where we make the deal with Planet Fitness. How did you get your dad to come around on the idea? It sounds like you were sold. I pushed for three years. We made the decision two years later, and then it took us a year to actually do the conversion. Got it. But you sold your dad. It took two years to sell your dad. Yeah, it took two years and, you know, it took some more pain and suffering for him to get there with the P&L of the World Gym. So I think that helped him get over it. And then on top of all that, 
it was a half a million dollar investment for us into a business that wasn't making any money. And how did you guys finance that? Cash. My dad just paid cash like he did with everything back then. Not the first Italian restaurant operator to stack up cash. Smart move. Listen, we, we sold a lot of 35 cent cups of coffees over the 20 year run. So he's, he had plenty of cash. Love God, that. God bless him. I love that. We were very fortunate, but really at that point in time, now my brother is out of school, I'm out of school, and this is getting real. We're doubling down on a business that's not profitable. So not too many people do that. And you just think about that and anyone that's thinking about what the state of their business is in today. So tell me about the 500K in cash. How much did that came from your dad vis-a-vis you? I mean, I'm sure Sal didn't have anything. He was coming out of college. I presume it was basically either all your dad or you and Yeah, my dad funded it. You know, I'm not going to take any credit for that. He started us. He put us in the business. I had 50, 60,000 bucks that was laying around. But what we did was we had to buy all new equipment. We had to paint the gym. We had to get up to the Planet Fitness standards. And think about the Planet Growth. Back then, those guys did a deal with World Gym. And overnight, they converted about 230 stores. So how big was Planet before the deal with World Gym? Well, I'm the ninth franchisee in the system at this point. I'm not laughing at you. It's, it's crazy to even think about that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm the ninth franchisee in the system. And so they had sold to Eric Dorr and uh, Shane McGinnis, my buddies down in Florida. They were the first franchisees. And then they did the Joe Pepe deal. I think Joe Pepe was the fourth franchisee. And then from Pepe, a bunch of World Gym guys got on board. I was one of them. There was another guy, you know, a couple more guys out in the western part of Massachusetts. With the World Gym deal that they did at that high level, that gave them the, the cash flows on the real royalty side to really start their franchise. So you got to give me a, a range, roughly. How many clubs was Planet Fitness operating before the World Gym conversions happened? Just put it into context for people. I would say it was sub 250. Sub 250. And how many planets are there today? 2,000. Okay. And this is not long ago. This is 16, 17 years ago? So 2007, when I got in, there was about 320 stores when I opened my store wow. as a ninth franchisee, maybe wow. less. So it's grown 6X, 7X, conservatively speaking, yes, in 13 since, years. Yes. Okay. We're definitely going to talk more about that. So you guys collectively as a family decide to go in on the planet model. So from 04 to 06, you convince your dad. It takes a year to convert the club and get it up to the planet standard. You guys hired a GC for that. Well, how, how did that go down? I imagine there was a little bit of... a sweat equity put into that thing. Yeah. So back then when we used to build restaurants, we built restaurants. You just don't go out and hire a big time GC because you just couldn't afford to do that. So a lot of the work we did ourselves. That's awesome. I love that. What's your specialty? What are you best at building? What were you best at building? Demo. I was the demo guy. That, you know what? <laughs> Stupid question. Probably, probably could have. Probably. I was the demo guy. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. So you come in, do the demo. Yeah. You guys finish off the job. Yeah. I mean, listen, we had like, I had a lot of guys in the, you know, that were between 20 and 25 around me that you know, was playing ball with me. So I'd get a bunch of guys in. And we'd it was fun. To, yeah. We'd, go, we'd make a day out of it, buy some pizzas and call it a day's work, you know? So we were very fortunate to have a lot of good people around us. But we, listen, we got the thing up and running. And really the, the story behind this is that now it's real. We got a lot of money into this thing. And really as operators, that's how we really learned business is because we had this one unit. We were new to the model and it really allowed us to hone skill set of understanding the planet model and the power that it really had behind it. And call it 18 months later, we're above the red and now the money starts coming in and that membership turned over. And, and you know what was difficult is you get existing rent and you have existing liabilities and now all of a sudden you're selling your memberships for 10 bucks. So you have to do a reverse four to one to get the same amount of money. So there's that gap until you get 
the membership up. But once we got that membership up, how'd you do it? We worked worked the business. Meaning what? I mean, you... I, I mean, I pretty much sold every membership in the club for like eighteen. Months. So you're out there on the street corner hanging out flyers. I mean, uh, not even like we you think about back then. Like we didn't do any marketing. We had no sophistication around marketing. The gym was open. People knew that we were doing this new thing. The tanning was a big hit down there in Riviera, so everybody wanted to buy the black card. The black card model, just for those listening, costs $22 a month. And you get what? You get reciprocal use of all the Planet Fitnesses in the country, up to 10 visits per month. You get all access to our spa area, which is all of our tanning, and our hydro massage beds and the massage chairs half price off the cooler drinks, you know, so that's kind of the model. But back then... You it, sound like it's like riding a bike. You're pitching it like you did 12 years ago. Yeah, well, I'm a ago. little bit out of the loop with respect to the operations today. It's been a while since I've been behind the front desk and I'm sure there's people on my team that do it a lot better than me. But the proposition for us back then was that the tanning was a big hit for us in that Boston market, sure. you know, to get unlimited tanning. Yeah, you guys don't see sun like 10 months out of the year up there. Yeah, and, and back then the tanning salons were charging 50, 60 bucks a month unlimited for tanning. So right. we hit the market and we have a, a gym and a tanning option for 20 bucks. So you had people coming in that weren't even using the gym. And we put we put a lot of tanning salons. We changed the tanning salon industry overnight in Boston because that whole business went, went away. I would say nationwide. Yeah, I mean, I have not talked to, and unless if I'm missing something, and I, I, hope, I hope people DM me after listening to this podcast and say, I know this tanning group growing, but you guys, you guys were a category killer there. Yeah, we put everyone out. Even the mom and pops that had a stronghold following in the area out, and then, you know, the dark tans and things like that, the more the franchise businesses, we put them all out. So tanning, the black guard, selling $10 memberships, you guys flip the script on your profit and loss statement, you go from red to black, everything's going well with the club. It's 2008, 2009-ish now, which the height of the recession, I would say most retailers or restaurants or anybody that I would talk to on the show would be freaking out. You're probably, as an operator selling $10 memberships, this isn't such a bad thing, if I had to guess. Yeah. And so if you just think about the excitement we had for the first time, we had like a business that we could see was striving, that we actually had financials that we could see made sense, that we had real equity on the books, that this thing makes makes a lot of sense for us. And so then that's when I started becoming overly aggressive. And listen, we have to figure out how to do this at a bit of larger scale. If I'm going to stay in this thing, I'm not going to do this to be a one club operator. I just always thought going big or go home was my way. So then what happens next? So now I start traveling all over the country, up and down the Eastern seaboard because the Boston market was bifurcated incorrectly. It wasn't a lot of continuous territory. You had a conversion in the South Shore. You had some conversions out West. There wasn't a lot of dirt. You know, I bought some dirt around my East Boston location. We developed one store over there and I'm now traveling up and down the seaboard. And I went to, you know, Pittsburgh. I went, I went to the Carolinas. I went all over the place. And in one of my visits, I, I went to Atlanta. And at the time, Atlanta in 2010, I go to Atlanta and there's one Planet Fitness there and it's up in Kennesaw and it wasn't performing well. I got all the background information on it and the franchisor because at this time, they were starting to see a lot of profitability in all the new locations everywhere. And the franchisor thought that the Atlanta market wasn't going to be a good market for Planet. And when I did my due diligence, I came back and I said to my, my brother and my father, I said, listen, this thing's wide open down here. There's just no gyms down here. There's LA Fitness. And we never viewed LA Fitness as a risk because they're in the middle. You kind of think of like the middle class of America evacuating. You know, when you look at the gym business, that's a bad spot to be in. You don't want to be the middle price guy. You either want to be the high price guy or you want to be the low price competitor. Yeah. But being in the middle is a scary proposition. And so 
we bought a, a 10 club ADA down in Atlanta. You know, we opened our first store in Q3 of 11, which is out in Wesley Chapel. So, uh, so this, point, this was your third total because you had the two in Boston. You had the original that you converted, you had your development site, and then you have this one that you bought. Yeah. And I actually hadn't even had the Boston one open yet because it was a, a large land deal that we did. So really, I just had the one store open. And now my first store that I'm opening is out of state. So that was obviously a challenge operationally because we were one club operators that basically lived in the, the gym at the time. Yeah. And now we're going out of state with our first location. And I do business with Ted Benning and Benning Construction. They've been doing our work in Atlanta for a long period of time. And they've been great partners with us. And I remember sitting in the parking lot and Ted trying to convince me not to develop the location because he just didn't know enough about the model. And I was adamant that we were going to develop the location there. And we opened the doors and we put 10,000 members in the club in 90 days. Whoa. I'm no mathematician, but that's pretty good. Yeah. We won an award that year at the convention for the fastest EFT to 100 that year, which was in 90 days, which is doing banana numbers. And just back then, it was just... And again, we were in the clubs. I basically told my wife, you know, I'm going to go open the club. I'll see you in basically a month. We rented an apartment around the corner and we lived out of the apartment and we just, we were working 12, 14, 15 hour days with that first club. And today we have, you know, over 500 employees working for us today. That's unbelievable. I see the smile on your face as you say that. That's, that's a hell of an accomplishment. I remember being on the phone with my family back home in Boston. It was Easter Sunday. We had opened the club in, in April and I was by myself down there in Atlanta. And my wife and I had a moment and, every, you know, everyone's at the house. And, and you know, I kind of felt like, Jesus, did I do the right thing here? I'm over here living out of this apartment working 18 hour days and you kind of don't realize what's happening until, you know, the blood and sweat kind of starts to pay off. So, so in 2010 or 11, you went from one to three clubs and then, then what happens? You keep going. It sounds like. Yeah, we did one, then we did one, then we started doing two at a time. Then we did two at a time. Then and it went from doing two in a year to doing three to just now we just write deals whenever we can get them. Once we negotiate them, we just open the clubs as fast as possible. We basically have grown from two clubs in 2011 to 32 clubs today. And how much of that... I know you've acquired some clubs. How many of the 32 are through development versus acquiring? Yeah, the majority of our portfolio is organically built. We, we've just recently acquired six clubs up in the Boston market. Congratulations. Thank you. So, Because I remember when we met a couple of years ago, you're like, yeah, I got 16. I'm like, wow, that's incredible. And then I was catching up with you like, two or three months back, you're like, I'm like, so how many do you have now? Like 19, 20, you're like 32. And I'm like, holy shit, this guy's on fire. It's unbelievable. We were very fortunate getting into the Atlanta market in 07, 08. It's time to look through the real estate and the due diligence. We were able to secure some very strong below market rents that's been the foundation of our P&L strength. Probably 20, 25 stores that we have a very, very favorable economic rents. And you know, we have all those deals tied up for you know multiple, multiple yeah, extensions. Like yeah, sure. No, you guys are the pretty girl at the dance right now, which is totally flipped the script. I mean, that could be a completely different podcast. But yeah. at one point, Planet Fitness was having to pitch landlords. I mean, now with all the bankruptcies that are happening in, in the junior box space, I mean, you guys are basically getting your pick of the litter and you're going from historically an eight or a nine dollar per foot rent payer in the suburban markets throughout the country. Sometimes, I mean, I'm hearing deals in good shopping centers with Planet Fitness paying six net, five net. And that goes straight to the bottom line as I see you grinning from ear to ear over that. So I know that excites you. So I know we don't have a ton of time. I know you got to get going soon, but I, I make everybody go through this. So you're going to have to do it too. Rapid fire, a few questions to end the, the show. And I, I know you got to jump. So here we go. Craziest deal you've ever worked on. 
real estate related, of course, since this is in general a real estate show. I know what I'm doing right now, Belvedere Plaza with Murray Weiss out of New York. Okay. I'm not going to ask for details because you're doing it right now, but Hands we, down. We, it's signed, but it's, it was, it's been a disaster. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I won't ask you any more about that without a drink in your hand. Advice for someone trying to work their way up in the retail real estate business, whether it be with a tenant, developer, broker, whatever it may be, what's the best advice you have for somebody who's either trying to break in or who's been in it for a couple of years and wants to get to a similar seat that you're in today? I think you need passion. I think you need to be not afraid of adversity. I think you have to have perseverance and integrity. I think those are the pillars of success that I've always been taught from my dad. And then you have to believe in yourself. And if you believe in yourself and you believe in what you're doing, I think there's always a way to figure it out. And then if you get over that hump and you do become successful, it's very important to make sure you give back to some aspect of the community around the people that have helped you achieve that. Awesome. No follow-up question needed. The authenticity, and I have the pleasure of being able to see you in person say that, but I'm sure even people that are listening will be able to feel that. that that's incredible. It's not complicated advice though. Try to keep it simple. There you go. It, it, it seems to be working okay for you. Uh, are you a reader? Do you, do you read it all? Listen to... I read all day long because I have to, but I'm a little bit more of a podcast. I think some of the stuff that I'm going through now and pushing down to my team is around servient leadership. Okay. I also do a lot of work with a book called Traction, okay. which is helping me build out my corporate structure and just more best business practices and how I can be better to serve the people that are around me. I think that's been one of my concentrations over the past six months. Okay. So Traction. If you were going to recommend one book for everybody to read, it'd be Traction. And you would recommend a podcast, but you're already on the best one out there. there so that go. makes sense. That's right. So this one's a little deep. So you're how old? I'm 47. Doesn't look a day older than 37. Thank you. So one day down the line, you're either going to elect to retire or you're inevitably, like the rest of us, unfortunately, going to die. And when you do go, your legacy is going to be well-remembered in this business. Because I truly believe with all my soul that if there's a way for anybody to figure out how to get several hundred Planet Fitnesses, I, I believe it can be you in your team because you have the operational and financial expertise to be able to figure it out. And so you're going to be looked at in retail real estate as basically like an icon. And ICSC one day is going to write this awesome article saying, Stan Demartini was an incredible operator who franchised Planet Fitnesses left and right and, and did whatever the hell else you decided to do for the rest of your career. When people and everybody wants their legacy to be remembered with their family, what do you want your legacy to be like in the business, specifically retail real estate or as an operator of a retail business? Well, I'm a very humble person. And the more successful I become, the more humble I become and the more thankful I become for these opportunities. I think my story is very, it's a very simple, basic story and hard work and determination. And I saw an opportunity in front of me and I wasn't afraid to take it. You ran through that crack door. I saw the crack in the door and I kicked it open. Yeah, that sounds about right. That probably makes more sense. I think that, you know, we're talking about opportunities that don't happen all the time for people. And I'm just grateful and thankful that I was able to identify the opportunity and take advantage of it. And this, sometimes these are lifetime opportunities that people may never have an opportunity to get in front of them. But I will tell you that the harder you work and the more times you're out there putting yourself out there, you're going to produce these opportunities. You just have to be ready for them when they come and present themselves to Stan, enjoyed every minute of the conversation. Some of it I was obviously privy to before because we've had a good relationship over the last few years. I can tell you, I speak on behalf of everybody who listened to this today. Thank you. Your passion reeks coming out of you in a positive way. Everything that you said, I know you believe in. You live your life that way. I'm honored and humbled that you were able to join me. Thank you for doing this. And I can't wait to see you get to 100 clubs as soon as possible. All right. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate you coming down. 
Thanks for listening to Limitless. If you like what you heard, it would mean the absolute world to me if you took a little bit of your time to subscribe. If not, perhaps even leaving a review, good, bad, or indifferent. And please feel free to reach out to me directly on my LinkedIn page or on our website, zuckerinvestmentgroup.com. 